Hello, welcome to this week's economy with Dr. Vance Gann. I'm your host, Dr. Vance Gann. Thank you for joining me again today. We've got a lot to discuss. There's a lot of stuff going on. And so I want to make sure that I'm cognizant of your time, which is valuable, right? Time is money. So let's make sure that we just get straight to it as we see what's going on in this week's economy. The first thing I'd like to talk about is ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. They recently released their 16th edition of Rich States, Poor States, which basically goes through each one of the 50 states, looks at a number of indicators like the top marginal personal income tax rate, the corporate the top marginal corporate income tax rate, personal income tax progressivity, property tax burden, sales tax burden, remaining tax burden, average workers' compensation costs, state minimum wage, right to work state, tax and expenditure limit. So basically looks at it from a tax spending and regulatory burden sort of calculus there and says, okay, how do the each how does each state rank? And then once they look at each one of those rankings, they then compile those into a performance outlook ranking um, along with a economic performance ranking over the last decade. So it's a great report, something I'll make sure to put in the show notes page, um, but you can find it at richstatespoorstates.org. This is the 16th edition. And what it shows is that the number one state are looking at economic outlook rankings for 2023. Utah's number one, North Carolina's number two, Arizona number three, Idaho number four, Oklahoma number five. Um, other states that you might think are or would, would be up there is Florida at number nine, Tennessee, number 11, Georgia, number 12, and Texas, number 13. Um, those are some of the other you know bigger states in the economy, also with no personal income taxes, things of that nature. A lot of those tend to be up near the top, as you would expect, but they also have less government spending, which is a key part. Remember, the old, essentially, government spending is taxation, especially when it comes to the state level and even at the federal level as well, because whether you're paying for taxes today or in the future, you're still going to be paying higher taxes with that additional increase in government spending. Louisiana, which of course I do a lot of work on, it ranks 26th. So they're at the bottom half of the pack. So they've got some work to do in their economic outlook rankings. But again, as you might expect, the big states that are more progressive, blue states, um, also rank near the bottom. So 45th is California, 46th, Illinois, 47th, New Jersey, 48th, Minnesota, 49th, Vermont, and 50th, dead last, New York. And so that shows you how they're ranking overall. And then you say, okay, but how have they actually done? You know, with their ranking, I mean, that's important and it goes off all those variables, but how have they actually done the economic performance ranking, looking at actual data from 2011 to 2021, state gross domestic product, absolute domestic migration, and non-farm payroll. So where are people moving with their with their feet, right? Incentives matter. How's the economy growing? And are people getting jobs? I think those are all key important indicators here. Uh, and for their performance ranking over that decade, Florida ranked, ranked number one. Number two was Utah, number three, Arizona, number four, Idaho, number five, Colorado, number six, Washington, number seven, Texas, number eight is Georgia, number nine, South Carolina, number 10, North Carolina. So again, a lot of the ones with more limited government, lower tax burdens, less government spending and less amounts of regulation really lead the way. Whereas at the, the bottom of the pack, so other big states, California uh, ranked 18th, let's see, you also have New York was 31st, you also have, and then ranked dead last what is a louisiana um, louisiana has a lot of work to do when it comes to its tax spending and regulatory climate to really help to improve their economic output and everything else um, so if this goes through each one of the states so if you want go and check out the rich states poor states um, and i think you'll really like what you what you see and can kind of go through why they're ranking why each state is ranking the way that they are so go ahead and um, check that out and the next thing that I wanted to talk about on the states portion here was that regulations matter in the states. There's House Bill 2127 in Texas, 
which this is by um, Senator Creighton, Chairman Creighton and Chairman Burroughs. Um, they're the two authors in the Senate and the House. And basically, this is a preemption bill for local regulations. So it stopped the patchwork quilt of regulations in each one of the localities across the state and have more of a consistent regulatory climate for businesses to do business with instead of having this increasing cost of not knowing the uncertainty of where you're going to be and everything else. And so I think this is a good bill. It's one that I think should be done um, because look in Texas where you tend to have the sea of red, I think I've talked about before, but you had these blueberries in a sea of red, the, the blue, more progressive localities of Austin, Houston, Dallas, uh, San Antonio, and, and those places have a lot more regulations than the other places. And we need some way to have a consistent amount of regulations across the state. And this is what House Bill 2127 is doing. A lot of small businesses also think it will help them. So I think this is a good step in the right direction of getting the regulatory out of control uh, situation of these local governments to really rein that in. Um, we also need local government spending limits like the state of Texas has a statewide state uh, spending limit like, like many states do. We also need local spending limits. I mean, that's where a lot of this excess spending coming from, especially in places like Texas, which is what's growing property taxes in the process. And so we've got to get a hold of that. On the federal side, you know, there's a lot going on with the debt ceiling. So yesterday, today, I'm recording this on April 20th, 2023. So yesterday they came out with their debt ceiling bill. Um, the speaker, Kevin McCarthy and, and others, they're calling it the Limit Save Grow Act, which would set discretionary spending levels for the coming year at fiscal 22 levels, which is probably still too high, but at least it's better than where it was this year, I guess and limit spending growth to no more than 1% a year. So I think that's a good, important part there is no more than 1% per year. It's kind of a fiscal rule that I've been advocating for for a long time, something like population growth and inflation. That's along those lines. It would also call back unspent COVID-19 relief money, impose new work requirements for government benefits. I mean, that's another key part of this where you know we've had these work requirements that have been suspended for a while now because of the COVID pandemic and everything else. We really need to get that back in there. That's how you get a job. You get the dignity and respect, but you also could build a career so that way you won't get back on these, these safety net programs. So that'll be important to stop the administration's plan to forgive some student loans as that there's no free lunch, right? Nothing is free. There's all going to be a cost. And so we've got to start stop this as well. Um, in clean, clean energy subsidies included in last year's Inflation Reduction Act and cut funding for more than 80,000 new internal revenue service employees. The plan would raise the debt ceiling by $1.5 or until March 31st, 2024, whichever comes first. So I think there's some good parts to this. It's really a focus on spending less. And hopefully that will be the key that, because that look in 2011, when they had the budget control act, um, under, you know, Republican Congress, um, Democrat um, president with Obama, they did, they were able to restrain government spending. We've got to have that again, because right now we're expected to run $2 trillion per year on average deficits over the next decade. And, 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 you know, net interest on the debt, just those payments alone are going to be a trillion dollars. This is a massive problem and it's really a fiscal crisis that's going on. So I'm glad to see that they're, they're doing this. I hope that something like this will pass. It's, it's, it's an uphill battle when you think about the Senate, though, because the Democrats run the Senate um, and whether or not Biden will even agree to all this. But I'm glad to see that the Republicans are actually putting something forward that could help with our dire fiscal situation that's going to continue to create more, um, less opportunity for growth, create more inflationary pressures in the process. And so this is something that I think should be done. And I do think those work requirements are really important. I know like Larry Kudlow talks about workfare, where you really, if you're going to get any sort of safety net programs, it should be attached to work. 
because that's how you're going to build a career and that sort of thing to get off of off of um, off of these welfare payment payments over time. And if by doing so, you're going to be better off in the process, less tax spending that we're going to have, more growth, things of that nature. That's also why I think if we're going to do dynamic scoring, we should not only look at the effects of like tax cuts, but also how that can reduce the amount of spending on safety net programs as well. So there's a lot of good things to think about there. I'm hopeful that something can get done because look, I mean, in January is when we hit the debt ceiling, uh, the federal level, 31.4 trillion. We're above that now. So they're put doing using other maneuvers in order to do that. Treasury is. Uh, but I think by July is whenever they really say that they're going to have a, a problem. I think it's already a problem, but that's when they're really talking about it'll hit. And then personally, um, this, this week I was in DC. I went and testified before the US House Ways and Means Committee, where I talked about the fiscal crisis that we're in, a massive 31.4 trillion plus the de de debt that we have, which is $95,000 per American or about $250,000 per taxpayer, just a massive cost to the, the economy and people in general, but also looked at the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed last year in August and what how it's been underestimated, the costs have been. Um, the initially, CPO said it was going to be about $400 billion, $391 billion, I believe it was. Now, estimates are showing by like Goldman Sachs and others that it's going to be closer to $1.2 trillion. So about three times what it was initially estimated and sold to the American public. They really need to get control and uh, get a hold of how much these actual costs are going to be as more data has come in. One of the big cost drivers of this has been the tax credits for electric vehicle batteries, um, EV batteries where initially the CPO estimated to be about $30 billion. My, my testimony, based on some other work by Christina McDaniel at Mercatus Center and also some from Goldman Sachs, those estimates, they're showing instead of the $30 billion, it's going to be closer to $200 billion, $196.5 billion. Could be even higher than that because, as we know, tax credits, spending money, and everything else, that changes the incentives in the marketplace. And so when you start handing out, you know, quote-unquote free money that comes from the taxpayer, businesses start to ramp up on the production, whether demand is going to be there or not. And then you get new rules and regulations that come out after these bills are passed by Treasury. And then that's given them even more room to fund electric vehicle batteries um, and electric vehicles, not only here in the United States, but it's coming from other countries as well, even places like China. So there was a big discussion about China and everything else. You know, I'm a free market guy. So I like to see wherever it's going to be the lowest cost comparative advantage. But we've also got to understand that some of these countries aren't very friendly to us at the same time. So why are we spending sending our tax dollars there. Uh, it's one thing if we want to do it voluntarily. It's another thing whenever they want to force us to use these monies of, of the taxpayer out of the out of the private sector to give to other countries. That doesn't seem like the, a good good situation. And then finally, I have a piece in the Daily Caller, which I'll make sure to put in the in the show notes page about school choice, the school choice revolution that's going on, and that it's helpful for the economy, students, parents, and teachers to where we can empower parents throughout this process so they could do what's best for their kids. Kids could get a better education. They could get better paying jobs. We could be more productive in the future. So it's also an economic boon at the same time. So there's some states that have already been doing this. Four states this year have moved to more universal school choice. Two last year, about 10 states now have ESAs, education savings accounts. But we need these to continue to happen across the states because if not, these states will be left behind. Not only their students, which is the main thing here, but also their economies as well will be left behind. And these other states continue to grow at a faster pace, be more, be a better well-rounded individuals and educated and things of that nature. Um, Texas looks still like it has an uphill battle to get this done, but I'm hopeful that they will. But I'm hopeful also that Louisiana and other states will look at what's happening in other states, not get left behind in the process. So 
We got states going on, some some look at the with the regulatory situation and other things that's happening across the states. Alex, rich states, poor states. We got the federal debt ceiling, um, what's going on with work requirements and, and the overall less spending is the key point there. My testimony before the US House Ways and Means Committee on the Inflation Reduction Act, excessive costs that I hope that they can reestimate and maybe even pull some of that back. Um, and then my piece in the Daily Caller on school choice. Thank you for joining this week's economy. I hope you have a prosperous day.